Anyway, so we're going to be, this morning, we're going to be looking through a passage uh, uh, where Matthew, who's the author of this book, he makes a brief cameo appearance in the story. He has an encounter with Jesus, and the religious leaders have a really big problem with that. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, there's only five verses that we're chugging through this week, so it's like we're not taking off, uh, biting off this huge bunch uh, of verses and everything, but there's a, even though it's a really short passage, there's just a tremendous amount of practicalities and applications and insights in this passage right here. And uh, for better or worse, we only have uh, time this morning to focus on one of those applications and insights, and the big idea for that is that Jesus keeps us from separating from people who aren't Christians. Jesus keeps us from separating from people who aren't Christians. Now, for some of us, uh, broaching an idea like that might offend our sensibilities, um, since the premise of it might sound a little bit snobby and condescending at first glance. Because, like, oh, let's talk about how one group interacts with another group. It's like, but this sermon isn't meant to have a snobby or condescending premise, because it's fair to say that some Christians do tend to separate themselves from people who aren't Christians. Like, I don't think that's controversial to say. I don't think I'm breaking any news here. I'm not dropping any bombshells or anything. But the most important thing to notice from the passage this morning is that Jesus himself is the one who keeps us from doing that. That's because he's the hero and he's the pace setter for everything along those lines. So let's pray. So God, I'm really thankful that, um, like, you're the hero and you're the pace setter when it comes to, like, interacting with people in general. So we just really... um, ask you that like the truth of um, from this passage in terms of like what you want to say will just really like um, you'll give all of us ears to hear like me too Um, yeah and we just really pray that like you'll speak through me as well so we just really trust you for that amen all right so the passage is going to be up on the screen it's Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 through 13 you can follow along up on the screen there you can um, go on your favorite bible app or anything on on your phone. There's also Bibles just right around the corner there um, that you can actually take home, too, as a souvenir of sorts. So. All right, so let's first set the scene. So Jesus is about 30 years old, and he just recently started preaching and teaching in informal outdoor venues to common, everyday people in the nation of Israel. And his sermon in Matthew, chapter, he preached this big sermon in chapters uh, five through seven, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he spoke at length about his authority as he was juxtaposing the gospel and religion. And for more on that, you can dig through our sermon archives online when Brandon preached about that, which was really good. So after he gets done speaking about his authority, he then makes his transition to showing his authority. And as we saw in last week's passage, he showed his authority over nature, over the demonic, and over sin itself. And, as we, and when we're, um, where we left off last week, there was this seemingly fever-pitched, chaotic scene in this little town called, called Capernaum, where a group of friends actually punched a hole in the roof of a house, and then they lowered their friend who was paralyzed through the roof of that house so that they can circumvent the crowds and have their friend encounter Jesus and be healed by him. And most importantly, Jesus declared that the man's sins were forgiven because he, Jesus is the one who has authority over sin. 
So there's tons of people closely and chaotically following Jesus around in this little town here. So imagine some of you grew up in this little in a little town. There's like this, you know, imagine that like there was this chaotic scene of just like following Jesus around. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And again, Matthew is the writer of this book, of this particular book in the Bible that we're reading. But surprise, this is uh, the only direct reference to him in the whole book besides a casual mention of him in, the list of dis- in a list of disciples in the next chapter. So Matthew isn't making himself the center or the hero of the story, and that's because he's rightfully consumed with showing how Jesus is the hero and the center of the story. And it says that Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth, and that's because vocationally, surprise, he was a tax collector. So Israel at this time, it wasn't a standalone sovereign nation because it was currently being long-term occupied by Caesar and the Roman government. So that's why like, there were non-Jewish Roman tax collectors just stationed at certain parts of, like, around Israel. So tax collectors would sit in their tax collector's booth and they would be strategically located throughout Israel so that Jewish people and traveling internationals could be charged tolls on goods passing through the area. And keep in mind that tax collectors, they were really rich compared to just almost everyone else because not only was it a really well steady, well-paying job, like not like being the manager at Menards, but this is like a really steady, like well-paying job. But like it was like um, very often they charged extra and skimmed off the top. So like they would just like in a really sketchy way. So suffice to say that the Jewish people were just pretty salty about tax collectors in general and just pretty much despised them. And that's not just because they stole from them, but the mere pre- their mere presence of tax collectors in Israel was a reminder that they were being occupied by the Romans. So in their minds, tax collectors were the worst kinds of people. So in verse 9, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Of all the people that Jesus could have singled out, looked right at them, and called, to fo- called them to follow, it was this tax collector. He wasn't only calling the straight-edge religious people to, call, to follow him and come under, come under his lordship. He was definitely calling them as well. But he was also calling the lying, stealing, scornful tax collectors. Because everyone is called to come under his lordship. And maybe there was more to this conversation than what's just here. It's not a lot. It's like, but this is like all that's recorded. And when Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, follow me, let's keep in mind that this wasn't a call to vocational ministry. This wasn't a call to, to make a jump from JV to varsity-level discipleship. No, this was a call to conversion for Matthew. 
And make no mistake about it, this was a no-turning-back moment for Matthew. So the Gospel of Luke, so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's like the, the Gospel of Luke documents this calling of Matthew as well, and it says that Matthew left everything and followed him. And that's worth noting because when Matthew left his way of life as a tax collector, that decision was costly and final. Because after he leaves his position, the Roman government is surely not going to like, just take him back to the job, like that job for a plethora of reasons, like, especially because there were surely lots of Romans who would be lining up for like, that kind of really well-paying, steady job, even if it was in the middle of nowhere in Capernaum. So, and if he tried to get another job, like, man, who would want to employ a former tax collector? Like, that is not something you put on your LinkedIn resume and expect to, like, have you get you another interview somewhere. Like, some of the disciples, like, who chose to follow Jesus were fishermen. Um, and in theory, they could always go back to being fishermen. But if you were a tax collector, there was no going back. Because that decision was costly and final for Matthew. And one of the questions we need to ask is, like, what's the cost for you to follow Jesus? Like, for all of us, there's a cost. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is extending the same call to you as he did with Matthew. Are you going to get up and leave everything and follow him? Or are you going to stay sitting in your tax booth and just let Jesus walk on by? Verse 10. Let's see what happens next. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Jesus told him, Now that you're a follower of me, you need to stay away from everyone in your former way of life because you don't want to be corrupted by the world. You just pray and read your Bible and stay away from those bad people. Is that what your Bible says? No. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Matthew had a dinner party for all of his former colleagues, presumably because he was friends with them. But even more importantly, he wanted his friends to encounter Jesus just like he did. His conversion didn't cause him to separate from his friends who weren't following Jesus. Jesus called Matthew to a different way of life under his lordship, but he didn't call him to forsake his friends and colleagues who aren't followers of Christ. No, like, he invites them into his home. And in that culture, the evening meal... Because, like, this was a working-class culture. It's just, like, people are busy during the day. They're busy during breakfast. They're busy during lunch. It's like they're working. Because the evening meal was the biggest and most notable meal of the day to the point where, and this is just one of those cultural, every culture has their differences and everything. This is one of the differences. It's like, um, it was so different that, like, like that evening meal was so big, such a big deal that if you ate together with someone in the evening meal, that was a really big deal. This, was, this wasn't like, eh, we just ate at Chipotle together. 
It's like, no, it's like if you ate together, this was culturally a really big deal to the point where you were making a huge statement about your connection with the people that you're eating with. And Jesus and Matthew were gladly ate together with them. And notice how Matthew, the writer here, lumps together the words tax collectors and sinners together in verse 10. That's because he's adopting the self-righteous language of the religious leaders because he's trying to make a point to his readers. Speaking of which, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now the Pharisees, like we'll talk more about details about them in a in a little bit, but they were of they were a specific group of Jewish religious leaders. And based on their reputation throughout the scope of the New Testament, it's fair to assume that their question wasn't rooted in genuine curiosity. No, like their question wasn't rooted in curiosity. It was rooted in accusation. Your teacher is doing a bad job when it comes to interacting with outsiders. Your teacher's philosophy of interacting with people is wrong. Your teacher shouldn't be, should be keeping you away from those people. Your teacher should know that those people are a bad influence, and your teacher should be encouraging you to separate yourselves from those people. Verse 12. On hearing this, because apparently Jesus is within earshot, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for those who are spiritually sick. Do you know how spiritually sick you are? Do you know how spiritually sick like your friends and neighbors and coworkers are? Because those are the ones who need a doctor. Those are the ones who need to encounter Jesus. And Jesus says that they should go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So he's, he's quoting a book called Hosea, in Ch- Hosea chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to get deep in the weeds of what he's talking about here, but suffice to say, when Jesus talks about, uses the word sacrifice in this particular passage, in this instance, he's just making a general reference to keeping all the religious rules in the Old Testament. It's just like a junk drawer term for that. It's like, oh, you follow all the rules to, like, to a T. Cool. That's good. It's like, but you don't also have a heart for mercy for those who are spiritually sick. Like, that's a really big deal. And what Jesus is getting at is that if you check all the religious boxes for following Jesus, but you don't also have a heart and a lifestyle that's characterized by mercy for the spiritually sick, then that's not what it means to follow him. Like, you can call that whatever you want, but that's not following Jesus in a meaningful way. And he recapitulates that at the end by saying that he hasn't called, come to call the righteous, but sinners. So as we can definitely see, um, the Pharisees have an just an inadequate and just really distorted understanding of how to interact with people, with outsiders. 
Because their philosophy was to separate from people who were outside of their faith. And it's really easy uh, in this, you know, to just look at the Pharisees in this passage and just think to ourselves, you know, just think to ourselves in a really snobby and condescending way, like, ha ha, those Pharisees. Like, I'm so glad that I'm not like them because I certainly don't, like, separate myself from unholy people like they did. And the problem, one of the problems with thinking something like that is that what we're doing if we think something like that is that we're accidentally setting ourselves up as just the hero and the center of, like, our own story. Like, is Jesus keeping you from separating from people who aren't Christians? Is Jesus the one shaping and driving your philosophy of how to interact with people? Are you just kind of relying on your own natural sensibilities and instincts for when it comes to how to interact with people? Is Jesus the one shaping and driving your life, or are you? So the helpful question to ask is, how does Jesus keep us from separating from people who aren't Christians? How does Jesus keep us from separating from people who aren't Christians? So to answer that, we need to look just a little more closely at the people who are just the most passionate about shot-blocking Jesus in this passage, which is the Pharisees. So big picture, the Pharisees were a very restrained group of people who were just earnestly desired to follow God and be uncorrupted by the world around them, which, all things considered, those are good desires. Like, if you don't think the essence of that is a good desire, like, that, that's a whole other sermon that's outside the scope of this passage. But, but, but along with, the, like, those good and well-intentioned desires, like, the Pharisees were also very negative and critical towards outsiders because, like we just saw in this passage with Matthew, and that's because they were convinced that one of the most pervasive ways to be corrupted by the world around them was to be in close contact and have friendships with outsiders. That's one of the big reasons why they were so offended by Jesus and Matthew eating with tax collectors. So the Pharisees avoided outsiders like the plague in their well-intentioned but ultimately self-righteous like, um, effort to follow God. But the reason why like, that kind of thinking is distorted is because ultimately that's not how Jesus taught and modeled of how to like, interact with people outside of your faith. And on top of that, it just really lacks the heart of God when it comes to, like, for people who are not followers of him. You know, like, I mean, where's the heart that, you know, for mercy that Jesus is talking about in verse 13? So in order to look a little little more closely at how Jesus keeps us from separating from people who aren't Christians, I just want us to take a brief field trip um, over to John chapter 17. So this is where Jesus is is praying for his disciples. So that'll be up on the screen here. So here Jesus is praying to the Father right before he's about to be brutally murdered and die for our sins and victoriously rise from the dead. So let's start in verse 15. And keep in mind that he's praying for his disciples here. So clearly this is applicable for us. Verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
So Jesus is praying that we wouldn't be taken out of the world and instead we would be protected from the evil of the demonic. In other words, Jesus is praying against spiritual warfare and the allure of hunkering down and separating ourselves from people who aren't Christians, which would include friends and neighbors and co-workers and tax collectors. He's saying, no, 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 no. Like, I want... I don't want you to take them out of the world, God. I want, you, I want them to bloom where they're planted, and while they're blooming where they're pl- blooming, I want them to not be separating themselves. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one because that's who they need protection from. And Father God, you're going to be the one who is being, going to be providing that protection. Do you believe that prayer he just prayed? Because that was for you. Verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And the word sanctify right there, um, that's just a fancy word for becoming more like Jesus. Like, there's more contours to it than that, but like, yeah, that's what it basically means is like becoming more like Jesus when that word sanctify. And Jesus is praying that you would be sanctified by the truth. And what does he mean by that? So in a narrow sense, he's talking about the truth of the Bible because he adds in that kicker in the end, like, like your word is truth. But in a more broad sense, he's referring to sticking close to Jesus because not to bog you down with a bunch of Bible verses, but in John chapter 5, it says that the whole point, the point of the whole Bible is the person and work of Jesus. Like, there's the written word, which is the Bible, and there's the living word, which is Jesus. And, like, and Jesus describes himself, himself as a living word because he embodies all the truth that's found in the Bible. So in verse 7, when he says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, he's praying that his followers, in the midst of not being beamed out of the world, that they would stick close to him. Jesus says that you are sanctified by the truth. He doesn't say that you are sanctified by distance from people who aren't Christians. And the essence of being sanctified by the truth is sticking close to Jesus. So one author says it like this. Sticking close to Jesus transforms our hearts to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. And this pushes us towards relationships with people who aren't Christians in hopes of loving them and connecting them with him. This actually protects us from sin because the way to avoid sin isn't to avoid people who aren't Christians, but to stick close to Jesus. Sticking close to Jesus transforms everything about us, and that's why the natural expression of it is to be on mission. And that's why it's not a coincidence that the very next words out of Jesus' mouth when he's praying right there is that, like, as you have sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Like, if someone's, that word's sent right there, that person is a missionary. If you are sent somewhere, you're a missionary. And Jesus says, like, I am God as a missionary. (laughs) Like, I am sent. And just as the Father has sent me, I have sent them. Matthew was sticking close to Jesus when he was eating with tax collectors. 
And even though we don't have Jesus with us physically, he promises disciples in Matthew 28, I'm going to be with them, be with you always. And with that promise as our foundation, we can trust that he will be with us as we pursue authentically real friendships with people who aren't followers of him. Ideally, in the midst of in the midst of other believers who are in community and on mission together and not in a lone rangery kind of way. Jesus is calling you to leave everything and follow him just like he did with Matthew. And the question is, how are you going to respond? And if you respond by following him, he will always lead you straight to the table with the tax collectors that are already in your life. So when we take communion here at River City, we take it on a weekly basis. So like, and that's a symbolic way of responding to him. So right now, he is looking at you, sitting in your tax collector booth, and he says to you, follow me. And Matthew choosing to get up from his booth and follow him is a lot like you choosing to get up and take communion. Because when you get up to follow him, you leave everything behind. Taking communion is your response and your declaration to follow him and remember him and everything that he's done on your behalf. The bread is symbolic of his body. The drink is symbolic of his blood. And those things were broken and shed for you because he lived the life that you were supposed to live and he died the death that you were supposed to die. And as you respond by getting up to follow him, like you're also following him straight into the lives of those who don't know him. So the, here at River City, there's two communion stations in the back right there. So, so you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, then you take it that way. And there's going to be, um, the worship team is going to be coming up here and playing three songs. And you can, anytime during those three songs, you can go back and take communion. And just remember that, like, just as Matthew getting up from his tax collector booth wasn't a re- going through the motions and everything, like, um, this isn't a going through the motions thing either. So remember to talk to him and just respond to him anytime you want during those three songs. Let's pray. Yeah, so we're, man, we're really thankful that, like, you model and just, like, how to interact with, like, people who don't know you and just, like, yeah, we're just, like, we're so thankful that even 2,000 years later that, like, the, the pattern and the model, the pattern that you show God is just, like, that's a pattern that you want to empower and, like, um, in us, so... Yeah, I'm thankful that like that's the kind of culture that um, that you've created here at River City, and we pray for more, pray for more of that too, God. So, um, really want people to be um, to be called by you, to follow you, and we just really want really want to be a part of the process um, for even more people. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for you, God, and we trust you to just just put all that stuff in motion. We love you. Amen.